Hey, this is the last coffee house. We are on the Sam Harris reading list. This is the once and future liberal. We tend to think of political ideologies as rival monoliths when it isn't so. I almost said ain't. I don't think I've ever said the word ain't before. <laughs> the once and future liberal tries to attack the identity politics that have become so prevalent in liberal politics while providing a path for the future of liberalism. It's written by Mark Lilla and published in 2017. I think he's a professor somewhere. So what are the contents of this terrible book? <laughs> it's, uh, it starts out with uh, Trump won, so it's unhappy about that. It blames the right wing to some degree. Calls Trump a populist demagogue. And, of course, I believe every single book that we've ever read related to political issues in the Trump era that was written by a liberal has defined him as a populist demagogue. Now that is so unbelievably meaningless. Uh, let me give you the definition of populist. It is a person, especially a politician, who strives to appeal to ordinary people who feel that their concerns are disregarded by established elite groups. Now, this is pretty much the method and strategy of every politician ever, is to appeal to the people who don't feel like they are being represented in government. Every time somebody who's running for office and says that, oh, the problem is Washington insiders, it's all those insiders in Washington, they're the problem, but I'm going to be the one who goes there and represents you, not the Washington insiders and the big business and all that stuff. That's populism. That's what that is. That's what politicians do. That's what they're supposed to do is say that, well, I'm going to better represent you than the people who are already there. You, ordinary person, who outnumber all the <laughs> CEOs at major corporations, you, ordinary person, are the one I have to appeal to. And it's such a, a broad definition, and it's just used so often, but it's used as a pejorative when it's against the opposing party, but you describe the exact same thing that your person is doing, and then you just say, no, that's fine, he's really speaking to the people, or she is really speaking to the people. So, demagogue, that means a political leader who seeks support by appealing to the desires and prejudices of ordinary people rather than by using rational argument. And obviously, I mean, like I said, it's always used when it describes Trump. But then they don't want to use it when they describe all the other people, you know, people like Barack Obama, who further hysterical fear-mongering narratives that, like police shootings are a major problem. Like the wage gap, he actually talked about the wage gap and completely misrepresented it to the American people. And like every politician right now, especially liberal politician, and obviously, you know, there's plenty of room to levy criticism all over the place. This is a liberal book, so it's worth attacking it on that basis. But especially now, when it comes to coronavirus, when it comes to the necessity or efficacy of lockdowns, the necessity or efficacy of wearing masks, when it comes to riots and police violence and using federal forces in local areas to protect federal property and conflating protesters and rioters, I mean, there are so many things, so many things where it's obvious direct demagoguery. But again, when it comes to the media, then they choose one and ignore the other. So these terms, populist and demagogue, I just don't think that they're useful at all at this point. It's like they've been so overused and just and in completely hypocritical ways that it's just like calling somebody racist or something like that. So uh, the author specifically says that he does not blame Trump supporters necessarily. He blames liberals for having abdicated the responsibility to some degree, at least. And breaks it down, breaks all of American history, recent American history, down into kind of these two chunks 
of political vision. So there's a Roosevelt dispensation and the Reagan dispensation. And the idea is that over these periods, these decades, that there were certain political visions that were kind of the the overarching ideas when it came to like individualism and your role in the country and that sort of a thing. There are these overarching ideas that maintained over those two big periods and that we're at the end of those periods and we need a new dispensation, you know, a new political vision to guide therefrom. Now, obviously, uh, that's that's really broad and that's really vague. And it happens over and over again when it comes to this book. This is a really short book, and it doesn't have a whole lot in it, but it really makes all these vague generalizations, not just about political realities like that, which actually could be something that's interesting to look into when it comes to trying to figure out how this really applies and whether there really is this distinction when it comes to Americans over these periods of time, but also the individual psychology of millions of Americans, and it daringly has almost no interest in actual evidence or argument, which is a little shocking. (laughs) So it goes into how there's this real difference. So it references a Republican site, which the Republican, I'm not sure if it was the RNC, but it's something specifically the official Republican page has a list of principles. It's like, these are the principles that we are following. And for Democrats, instead of having a list of these are the principles that we're following, it has a link to all these different issue groups. So, and based on identity. So it'll be like LGBTQ or here's black, here's Hispanic, you know, we're grouping you specifically rather than having this general vision about these are the the things that we're trying to get accomplished. It's like you can link to all these different groups because that's what really defines you and defines our platform. And then and this is what's so frustrating. It's just like books that we read before where it it'll have kind of these ideas that it lays out and it's like, okay, this is something that we could actually look into that might be interesting and might be important to understand. But then especially liberal books just go into these weird diatribes that have to be projection that just kind of give away the game. You know, they divulge what liberals are actually thinking. So it's like at some point it talks about in this section how the only way to defend minorities is by winning. So liberals have to win to be able to defend minorities, whatever the hell any of that means. And obviously the implication is that if Republicans win, (laughs) the whole point is for Republicans to be able to attack minorities. Do you know how, I mean, disgusting that kind of a posture is when it comes to politics in general? This is supposed to be like the open-minded liberal who's trying to push back against the crazy leftism that's coming out. And they're talking about and implicating the entire right side of the political spectrum in attacking minorities. Like, that's their point. How insane is that? Obviously, even as an out-and-out liberal when I was an undergrad, I understood that Republicans thought that their policies that they were trying to do when it came to individualism and free market and all that stuff were supposed to be long-term much better for everybody. No matter what your skin color or anything else or gender, they believed their policies were better for everybody. That was the point. And yet you've got this liberal in this book specifically talking about the only way to protect black motorists is to get liberal democratic governors to appoint judges who would then presumably be liberal. Do you know how insane you must be to think in these ways that you need to get liberals in office so that black motorists aren't being murdered by the police and appoint the right judges? There's just half of the country that are just these sociopaths who can't wait to kill a bunch of black motorists? What the hell is wrong with you? What is going on in this country that it's possible to have these kinds of thoughts? Again, this is somebody pushing against crazy leftism. Jesus Christ. And then uh, just a vague generalization about how Republicans are intellectually bankrupt. No details on that, but that's just thrown out there. 
it's absolutely infuriating that there's there's a human being out there like this. But if we go into chapter two, okay, so uh, so apparently uh, the so the position is that. The country's out of crisis in the late 70s, and then Reagan kind of took back, and he was so popular because he created this new political vision that was going to govern for a few decades thereafter. So it, Reagan took it back to the individual. It was hyper-individualism. It was about self-reliance. He attacked the government as an institution, said government gets in the way, that, that kind of a thing. And the author talks about how this created an issue that there was no common good anymore. Again, insane broad generalization but something that could be interesting to actually explore and try to figure out and try to determine, okay, once you emphasize, once Reagan starts emphasizing individualism, did it actually lead to this idea, this breakdown in the fabric, this idea that there's no common good anymore, that we don't have that kind of a connection, and could that be traced all the way up to today? Interesting idea, but no interest on behalf of the author in whether it's actually true or not. It's just, it's just kind of tossed out there. So Roosevelt, you know, dealing with economic collapse and the rise of communism, and and then you've got liberalism in the 70s kind of becoming rote. Too many government programs all over the place, because that, that was the, the posture, you know, as of, of post-Depression American politics. And then you've got the issues of the government actually doing bad stuff. So like going into Vietnam, and then we have this the Nixonian era and all that stuff leads to people realizing or recognizing or at least determining that the government does bad stuff too. So maybe it's not so so great. Then you've got the Reagan who comes in and it's more more about optimism and that there's nothing wrong with the American people. That the government's much of the problem. The entrepreneur, the lone entrepreneur going out there and making it becomes a hero culturally. And then we get an impeached Clinton for a peccadillo. I don't know if that's a legitimate characterization of that. I mean, I remember seeing headlines, at least, around the time. And I was like, well, this doesn't seem that bad. He lied under oath, obviously. You don't want a president to do that. But to call it a peccadillo, <laughs> I don't know about that. Uh, he did lie under oath. And, of course, today, in the Me Too era, this would have been absolutely horrendous. He abused the most powerful office in the history of the world to sleep with a subordinate staffer. This would be something that would not be okay by today's standards, but still called a peccadillo. And then uh, the author attacks right-wing media, says that if, if the right-wing fails, then they'll just blame it on the deep state. And that Trump has an angry and fearful base, and and that's the only way that it works. Obviously, I mean, this is obvious projection when it comes to an angry, fearful base, or a base that's driven by emotion as opposed to looking soberly at the reality. Uh, the leftists right now, and apparently just your average liberal, is just this hysterical, fear-mongering person with totalitarian tendencies. I mean, obviously the center-left people, people like Sam Harris or Tim Pool or something like that, What's named Ruben and a lot of the I'm sure a lot of the writers, the people who are leaving a bunch of these newspapers and probably a lot of them who still work there who are just classical liberals. I'm sure none of them fall in any way into this category when it comes to being hysterical and fear mongering or calling for totalitarian tendencies. But there there are a whole lot of them that seem to fall into this position. And don't get me wrong. I mean, virtually every liberal that I've talked to in person, every time they bring up some kind of crazy thing that's being pushed by the media, like defunding the police or that America's racist or anything like that, once you ask them a couple of follow-up questions, then they suddenly become eminently reasonable. They're like, okay, well, yeah, we don't need to do all that, but... And I'm not, I'm not really saying that it's, it's, it's that extreme or anything like that. And yes, I appreciate you providing statistical evidence related to police shootings, and, and that makes me less concerned about it. You know, they'll respond in those ways. 
But still, I mean, when you've got major liberals, apparently, who teach at universities who are making these kinds of statements and and fall into these kind of categories, I mean, it's it's concerning. It's definitely concerning. Uh, okay, we go on to, like, chapter three. This is already getting pretty long, uh, and there's not much to talk about when it comes to this book. Uh, special emphasis on universities. New immigrants appreciated not having to assimilate entirely. Uh, there's just these vague assertions related to this stuff. And it was a switch to the group instead of citizenship. So again, I don't know if I really established well this well. When it comes to the book, the book specifically is trying to argue against using identity politics. 100% behind it. Excellent, excellent thing to do. But the way it goes about doing it is so just beyond the pale, ridiculous, childish, sophomoric, nonsensical. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. But it's trying to say that we can't use identity politics. We have to focus on something else when it comes to building liberalism. So it's saying that at some point we switch to groups, you know, based on these identity characteristics instead of focusing on citizenship as this shared thing that everybody has. Brings up the feminist revolution and how they switch it by saying that the personal is political, which to some degree very important, but to some degree it's just been an absolute headache. So obviously bringing domestic violence into the spotlight, huge, incredible, big deal major accomplishment that everybody needed, but making literally everything political, <laughs> it's its made it kind of a, uh, ridiculous. And then we get things like the pink tax, where they talk about how uh, feminine products are more expensive than male products, so therefore there's some kind of injustice. Absolutely ridiculous. And he goes after Facebook for some reason uh, about this model of identity on Facebook. So I can see calling out social media, but again, this is just kind of vaguely plugged in there. And it's just that on Facebook, you kind of create this persona and that has some kind of a problem related to all this political stuff. And identity is Reaganism for lefties. So he's, he really doesn't like Reaganism and the hyper-individualism and focusing too much on the individual because it makes a bunch of atoms that just run into each other instead of having shared identity and shared goals, which to some, again, it's super vague, but to some degree, you can understand that position. But he's saying that identity politics is just Reaganism for the left. And there's no political vision right now. And so we need that political vision. One thing that he emphasized was the difference between movement politics and institutional politics. And that the left is too focused on movement politics right now as opposed to institutional politics. Movement politics is just kind of the broad social thing where it's like we're part of a movement as opposed to the institutional politics where it's like, okay, getting people elected and getting things done, getting legislation, local politics, all that stuff. Uh, it throws some more barbs at Trump. The real scandal is that he's president at all, whatever. But one of the important things was saying that he should be and liberals should be able to talk about these kind of political issues. That's very important. And that's why we need kind of a substrate of citizenship that we share and then we can move on from there. So by reference, he brings up that he's an absolutist on abortion, uh, which is insane to me. I cannot, I mean, oh, if you're on the right and you are pro-life and you're an absolutist, that's, that's a position I can understand. An absolutist on the left, at some point between fertilization of the egg and breaching the canal, at some point in between there, it's a life, you know, quote unquote life. And you have to figure out along that line where it goes from a tooth cleaning to murder of the most vulnerable person on the planet. And so to say I'm an absolutist to, for women's choice or whatever else, 
is pure insanity from that perspective. It's it's saying that even though that's an incredibly fungible question, who the hell knows along that that spectrum, who the hell knows where it actually switches over to being complete evil from something that was just a meaningless procedure. But to say that you're an absolutist on that is is crazy. Of course, the point is that he's saying that I can still talk about it. I don't know how you can be an absolutist and still talk about it, but <laughs> but okay. Uh, again, the whole idea is that citizens, we're all citizens, and we should focus on that. I'm okay with that. That's perfectly fine as a general idea. It's important to have that shared experience, that shared sense of identity. It supports the country. We need to support the country so that we can have a healthy polity where people are willing and able to be moral and share and make sure that they attend to the duties that they have when it comes to people, other citizens, other people in the country. Anyway, then he just, I mean, completely 100% loses me at the point where he starts talking about black motorists again and all the dangers. I, I'm going to have to do an episode on this just to make sure. I mean, I know I must have brought it up when I talked about George Floyd and Tony Timpa in that earlier episode, but it's just, it's so frustrating that this, that somebody's willing to bring this up. It's, it's this weird kind of derangement. It's not Trump derangement anymore. It's, it's morphed into some extra derangement. Or the crack epidemic, you know, that everybody will bring these things up and not know any details about them. And it's really frustrating. Uh, like that crack epidemic issue, they talk about how, okay, well, I heard somewhere that you got punished way heavier for if you had crack in the some urban area versus if you just had, you know, the powdered version, same substance, but you had the powdered version in some wealthy white area. So you got way less time for that. So therefore, it's some kind of systemic racism. And of course, they have no interest in the fact that it was much more prevalent in those areas, much more associated with crime and violent crime in those areas. And uh, many other reasons, including by virtue of a lobby that specifically said we need to attack this more heavily. We need to have stricter punishment guidelines for using crack in these urban areas because it's causing such a huge problem. These are community groups that are coming out and saying this. We need to do this. <laughs> So all these different factors, of course, just swept under the rug so that they could get this narrative out. And then, bam, here we hit it 100 miles per hour. We hit the wage gap. Just bam, just throw that in there, which is, of course, one of the most ridiculous, nonsensical, fear-mongering narratives that has been perpetuated upon the American people. It's done by using a single variable, which is pure insanity when it comes to trying to figure out whether there's actually injustice here. And it's just repeated over and over and over and over again. The wage gap is is nonsense. You have to look at it based on a million different factors to determine whether it's an injustice or it's just reality when you have people freely choosing what they want to choose. So to just toss it in there as some kind of grand injustice that's going to justify the kind of nonsense being spouted in the book, you know, it's ridiculous and unforgivable. So the final thesis, uh, we're all citizens, and so we need to have that kind of shared background. Again, not a bad idea, not a bad thing to advocate, but just ridiculous how we got here. And no interest in actually showing, you know, making evidentiary arguments supported by evidence or anything like that. And then some criticism of BLM, but not for the reasons that you might think. It's because they played right into the hands of the right, and that's the problem with them, not all the myriad ridiculous things that are associated with it whether it's what it's based on uh, you know complete nonsense complete lie that it's just a fear-mongering narrative that's used to further their political platform or their political platform and the things they're actually trying to accomplish like destruction of the nuclear family i mean so many uh god so many bad things and then it throws another fit about trump and how mobs at trump rallies are tyrannical 
and it's always so hilarious. You can't have a tyrant who advocates for free markets. You can't have that. And it's hilarious that on one side, you have one side that's saying that, oh no, we need to shut people up on social media. We need to silence the president. We have Kamala Harris saying that we needed to silence the president on Twitter. One side that's saying that we need to roll back constitutionally supported rights like the Second Amendment. Trying to just break all the norms like destroying the filibuster and so many other things that show totalitarian tendencies like wanting to take over all of healthcare, like wanting to take over, you know, increase regulation and requirements and all that stuff for every kind of business everywhere. Wanting to guarantee jobs, so take over huge segments of the population for some social reason. This is all on one side, and then they yell at the other side and say you have all these totalitarian tendencies. I mean, it's complete nonsense. Complete craziness. Anyway, whatever. That's the end of this ridiculous book. And just to make sure... (laughs) Because obviously, you know, and anybody who listens knows that I'm always concerned about being biased. I'm always concerned that I'm not being fair to whatever political topic I'm addressing or whatever book I'm reading or whatever, whatever person I'm, I'm dealing with. So I try to make sure that, <laughs> that I, I work it out. And in this case, I went to a liberal for the criticism of this book and to try to see how they were responding to it and how they felt about it. This is Charles Kaiser in The Guardian, August 2017. So here's what this person has to say. But then the tunnel vision of his campus experiences kicks in, leading him to say things which are half true, untrue, false, or just completely meaningless. So again, that's that's a liberal. <laughs> Quote, Lilla also sees Facebook as a dangerous manifestation of the narcissism of young people on the left. The Facebook model is all about the self, he writes, my very self, not about common histories or the common good or even ideas. End quote. And then the author of the piece says, this is typical of the kind of broad statement he makes without offering any evidence. End quote. So this, <laughs> this uh, writer noticed the same thing. And just to make sure we've established this writer's liberal bona fides, quote, he is right when he says Trump voters seem to possess nothing but a paranoid conspiratorial picture of power that our popular culture and right-wing media continually refresh. End quote. So there you go. A TDS sufferer who's criticizing this book pretty heavily for being incredibly vague and short on evidence. Okay, and just to make sure, we're in my analysis now. Uh, All right, so... You can fairly criticize Trump. You can fairly do this. If you want to see fair criticisms of Trump, go to Ben Shapiro. Every time Trump does something stupid or says something stupid, Ben Shapiro has a reasonable criticism response that makes sense relative to the thing that Trump did instead of just going hysterical and screaming about it or being, you know, biased on the other side and saying that Trump can't do anything wrong. Ben Shapiro criticizes Trump fairly most of the time when it comes to him saying stupid things or (laughs) doing stupid things. But it's this ridiculous hysteria when you say all Trump voters. Now, I didn't vote for Trump, but it's so the book is so vague and so broad. It's almost exclusively pointless. It's so strange. I mean, it's par for the leftist course right now to have this weird pathology of I'm absolutely certain about all of my ideas. And now I just need enough influence and power for everyone else to accept them. That just seems to be the leftist pathology right now. And I get it's some kind of weird emotional fit, like they're so mad that they were surprised by 2016 that they have to do this. And now you've got all all of Silicon Valley having this fit too and trying to suppress this and, and meddle in the election that and all this other nonsense. But it's this weird pathology that we've got right now. So the general ideas are fine. Identity politics bad, great. Citizenship as a shared experience, great. 
But it's a lot like the conservative book that we read a while ago. It was Alienated America. I don't know if people remember this book. The author argued for stronger communities. Great, wonderful. But there was no interest in in actually exploring the empirical reality behind these topics. You know, there are so many vague generalities and all that sort of stuff. And even in that book, I remember there were a whole lot more studies cited. It was just there would be really general studies and they didn't really go into the particulars of the studies or how much they applied or didn't exhibit humility about the conclusion or anything like that. So at least it had that. But these two books are, are of a kind when it comes to just having fine conclusions, but not having an interest in the actual empirical question behind any of this stuff and not being willing to be reasonable or, or exhibiting humility when it comes to empirical conclusions or anything like Oh, it's just so frustrating. Okay, so big picture wise, if this book is representative of sober voices in the liberal community, I'm shocked. And we are doomed. <laughs> Alright? I mean one of the things that it always does, and I don't I don't know what what is going on here when it comes to this, but these kinds of books, especially the liberal ones, they usually talk in terms of, oh my god, we need to win. We need to win, 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 win. How do we win? That's the most important thing, let's win. Rather than terms of this or that is best for the country and therefore we need to win. Or this or that is better for the country, so even if the other side did it, that would be perfectly fine. We just need to get everybody on board with this idea or that idea. We just read Ben Shapiro's new book, which I really liked. It was it was uh, good. It was more limited, just philosophical direction of the country. And he was very explicit in, to make sure that that's where we were standing. Because some of his other books, he would he would just kind of race through all these empirical ideas. And he wouldn't support them well or have an interest in them or anything like that. But this, he was very clear that this is a philosophical idea about a general interpretation of American history. So he would just say, okay, here is my interpretation based on American history. Here's my evidence for why this is a better interpretation. Here's the rival interpretation. Here's where they think they get that from. Here's why that's wrong. And so we'd go along these things and it's a broad topic, but he made sure to narrow it down <laughs> to explicitly what he's talking about, how much he's trying to say and how much they're saying and why they're wrong and all that stuff. And he was specifically saying, okay, here are good ideas. These are good ideas. These are the good ideas that we need to put forth. Whoever's putting them forth, these are the good ideas we need to put forth. Liberal, Republican, whatever, it doesn't matter. These are the good ideas. Everybody agree with me on this. If not, then let me know why. But when it comes to these liberal books, they just seem to be like, no, we just need to win. Who cares what the ideas are? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what the ideas are. We just need to win. Here's how we win. We need to win, 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 win. Which is shockingly dangerous. <laughs> It's like the worst posture to have in any political party when it comes to the good of the country. I mean, even Sam Harris, who I've met, by the way, I don't know if I've dropped that <laughs> recently, um, but he's one of the brightest people I know, but he still, whenever it curves off into Trump, he just goes nuts. He just goes on these nutty diatribes all over the place. So we need to change the standards by like, what's the Overton window of how we can have political conversations? I mean, it needs to all be based firmly in evidence and supported argument. And anybody who's not suspicious of their own conclusions that happen to align directly with their ideology, I mean, shouldn't be taken seriously. Everybody should be able to do this and should do this regularly. We need to change this culture of the way that we have these kind of conversations. And it's really tough because we have right now we have things like TikTok and Twitter and Instagram. And those are the ways that we communicate about these things. And they're just so superficial. And we're driven because the incentives are there. We're driven just to get the most intense support that we can possibly get. 
and that just radicalizes everybody. But uh, anyway, that's a whole different topic. Uh, and it's something that I would need to support with evidence and argument <laughs> and make sure that I scale whatever conclusions I'm drawing based on that. So, wow, this was a huge episode. This was not meant to be. I thought this was going to be like a five-minute thing. Um, sorry about that. But thank you, anybody who has who has been listening and who listened to this whole thing. We've got more books, more books coming up. I think I'm going to mix in some other kinds of episodes. I just, I'm so frustrated. I, I feel like everything is going the wrong direction right now. We need to get back on a legitimate path to trying to figure out what's true first and make sure we have all the cultural support that we're going to be able to protect all these individual rights so that people can have the kind of freedom that we got to grow up with and the kind of freedom that built this country into what it is. It's, ugh, it's under threat right now. Freedom right now is under threat, and, and we need to do something about it. Anyway, this is The Last Coffee House. Thank you very much. Okay, bye. <laughs>